Hello, welcome back to the Line to Gain podcast. Uh, my name is Jeremy Dixon. I'm here with my co-host, as always, Mike Parker. Mike, how's it going, man? It's going great. We're here doing episode four. Uh, we're going to go over the 1960s. Yeah, I'm excited, man. This is, uh, you know, it's starting to come to, to more players that I feel like I grew up with, or not maybe not grew up with, but like knew as a child. You know, who these guys were in their their later years after football or whatnot. So yeah, there's a handful of players that uh, most people are going to recognize that uh, were stars in this decade, right? And handed the baton really to the '70s and the '80s. Yeah, yeah. And you know, we did that in this uh, the deep dive into the the AFL that we did last week was so interesting, and like I feel like almost. Not all, but a lot of the information that's out there about 1960s professional football focuses primarily on what we covered last week between the the merger and the, the kind of battle back and forth between the AFL and the NFL, which is so amazing. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, please go back and do that. And then here we are for, uh, for our 1960s, uh, NFL 1960s, I should say. Here we go. All right, so uh, you want you want to kick off the stat guy, or you want me to do that? Uh, I'll kick off stat guy. I, I have some, you know, things to to admit to here. Um, uh, me and stat guy uh, had some words this week, um, but ultimately I had to admit my fault. So I hope, I hope he wasn't too hard on you. No, nah, he's you know he's a little curt sometimes, but you know he's okay. It's an acquired taste. <laughs> Uh, so last pod, um, towards the end, I kept manage- mentioning Dan LaMonica uh, as the um, quarterback for the Raiders in the AFL. Um, I wanted to uh, note that his name is actually Daryl, not Dan. <laughs> so I, I don't know why it just switched in my notes to Dan. Um, I probably just, I need to slow down. You know, funny thing, what I was, in case anybody didn't know, I'm the one that usually edits down the podcast uh, and tries to, I try to take out any, any little hiccups we have here and there. And I heard that and I rewound it and listened to it like six times. (laughs) And I was like, I can't, I couldn't tell if you were just saying it so fast. I couldn't hear Daryl or if you were saying Dan. So I just left it in. Yeah. I probably should have just cut out the first name and and just had you say LaMonica and people would have known exactly who you were talking about. But that's my bad. Well, I think the funnier thing is just insert a robot like voice (laughs) saying Daryl. Yeah. (laughs) That would have been great. Yeah. I should have next time for sure. Next time for sure. So, yeah, I guess, so correction from episode two, I was present when, when we got this stat correction. Yeah. Uh, this it wasn't even he from He wanted stat to make guy. a point. This was, this was, uh, this was directly, directly from, my from dad. Uh, your dad. And what does he go by, MEP? MAP. It's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's not, no one calls well, him MAP. Well, shout out to MAP. Uh, yeah, he, so Mike's dad was not actually born in Cleveland. Uh, he was born in Seattle, but uh, lived a significant part of his youth in Cleveland, thus... His affection for all things Browns, including Paul and Jim, or all things Brown, all yeah. things Brown, Jim, the Jim, Tim, and Jim, Jim, and Paul. Um, yeah, so this was a huge oversight on my part. I think I yeah. got a little overzealous with the with the Browns tie-in. Um, yeah. I'm from Cleveland. I was born there. He went to um, college in Cleveland and big chunks of high school. He has also spent time in like St. Louis and uh, Kansas. Um, and Seattle, so it's kind of all over the yeah, place. Yeah, so it's a real uh, diverse, diverse background for yeah. sure. He knows some things. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's great. So one of the big things I wanted to research with, I mean, we you had brought it up in last um, last week's episode um, that the players that had signed with the AFL. Um, were actually at once the merger agreement was in place, went back to their original teams. And I was like, whoa, that's interesting. So um, just to confirm that, we were able to confirm that, for example, Mike Ditka and uh, uh, John Brody um, were the two big names that we we brought up, were both returned to their NFL teams um, in 1966, um, didn't play any games with the Houston Oilers, uh, Ditko was immediately traded to the Philadelphia Eagles and essentially is, you know, his numbers plummeted thereafter. Um, but yeah, so just an interesting thing. There was no 
um, NFL players that were poached from that league to go to the AFL that actually played. Um, Mike was able to keep his uh, $50,000 signing bonus um, in this process. So I guess it worked out for him, worked out for the NFL, and ultimately the owners in the AFL. Yeah, that's uh, that's good. I mean, Dick. Uh, I mean, I wonder what Brody got to keep if he got if they going back to San Francisco if he got to keep his million dollar contract or. No, I, I doubt yeah. he. Yeah, he didn't keep the million dollar contract. The contracts why, were never that's were satisfied. That's why they were my losers on the last. He doesn't get uh, a game check for not playing a game man, with the Oilers. That's tough. That's tough. All right. Um, on so another uh, correction from episode three. Pete Rozelle was not the, quote, PR guy for the L.A. Rams. He was their general manager before becoming commissioner of the NFL. Um, and I, was, I wasn't I was sure about that. And and when you said PR, it sounded right to me for some reason. So I wasn't uh, – I was, I was totally lost on that too. But thank goodness for PR guy or for a stat guy, stat not guys. PR guy. <laughs> like this is going to be my, Mike's three strikes, you're out kind of stat guy set, uh, segment. Yeah, and in the, the last correction uh, by me, I kept calling the score uh, the destiny score, and it's really the dynasty score. Okay. And I, I say this in my personal life as I'm rattling off some of these facts to you know my friends and family who just happen to be unlucky enough to be in the room. And I just I, I, I catch myself all the time. So I need to, again, slow down, focus, and uh, use the correct terminology. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the same way, man. I do the same. And the other thing, another stat correction. It's not really a stat correction, but also editing this podcast down. I laugh on here way too much, and it's kind of annoying, and I'm sorry to everyone. I'm going to really <laughs> be as, as conscious of that as possible and try to cut down. But uh, Just edit the, the laugh down a smidge, but I like, right. I like the banter. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, this week also we're adding a two tight ends and a kicker to the fantasy football categories, making for an 11-man fantasy football roster, which is I, I thought that was a good number, yeah. you know, to, to come round that off, especially as we got into specialty players and positions like tight end are going to come up in the late 70s and early 80s. Right. As, a t- as a player, you, you can't miss. You have to, you have to count them as a as a fantasy football player starting roughly around then. So we might as well get to it now and just see what we got. Yeah, let's do it. And finally, we're adding a new category. Um, It's called This Just In. Um, Just a kind of an overview of, could be like the political notion or or political environment that's going on at the time. It could be some some facts that don't really fall into some of the other categories that we thought that we should take note of. And and stuff like that so um we'll be adding that to further podcasts as well so let's get into this thing so the, the dynasty of the decade rules are as follows you must make the playoffs in a given year to earn points to be the dynasty of the decade you must win at least one championship or super bowl those are the basic two rules all teams will be scored um from one to five based on how far they made it in the playoffs with the, the team winning the championship in the Super Bowl in a given year, earning a max point, uh, max nine points. So there we go. There are the rules. Let's do the categories. All right. So uh, this just in is our first guy. We need to have like a Sounders, like 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 you said with the uh, I, I digital sent, voice. Yeah. Or yeah, I sent some uh, clips that we can might be able to insert in future podcasts for these little sections. That's good. So yeah, we'll, we we'll, need, we'll work on we'll that. We'll work on it, guys. We'll work on it. So, yeah, uh, first first thing from this just in, Pete Rozelle, former GM of L.A. Rams, elected NFL commissioner in 1960. Yep, the previous, um, I guess, non-wartime commissioner um, had passed away just prior to the 1960 season. Burt Bell, right? Burt we Bell, talked about him exactly. a little bit in the last and, podcast. Um, and they had asked uh, Pete Rozelle to be the commissioner. Um, so he kind of left his GM job at the LA Rams. And um, he's probably the most famous, um, most notable commissioner um, in NFL history. I think he was yeah. at the helm through uh, a massive expansion, um, massive value increase, uh, the beginning of the Super Bowl. Um, I think really set the tone in a lot of ways for the direction the NFL would be going over the next few decades. 
Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good one. So um, the NFL also introduced something called the Playoff Bowl, um, and it pits the two conference runner-ups um, against each other. It's kind of like a you play for third place kind of deal. And that's it, what I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah, and it really it set the stage for like a planned playoff game prior to that it really is if there was a tie in a conference they would play a playoff game and then that winner would play the winner of the other conference but there was no scheduled um playoffs until this playoff game and why is it important because a third place um versus a fourth fourth place does have some bearing on where you finish in your um in your drafting so yeah, absolutely. Um, and another thing, the NFL signed a contract with CBS to air all the regular season games uh, for $4.65 million a year. And uh, I think in there somewhere was a little wink-wink uh, not to broadcast the AFL scores for, until the merger was completed. I know we talked about that a little bit last year. but Yeah, you, um, you can't CBS be giving ad- free advertising to your... No. you know your opponents no not at all i mean just think about the flex like you're going to a major one of the three major broadcasting companies in the united states at the time and going you can't do this right no you're gonna pay us four million and some odd dollars to, right. to for the right to show our product and then we're going to dictate to you how you're going to operate your business so what a flex yeah absolutely so they're like Major League Baseball and boxing, um, NFL wasn't immune to gambling and um, gambling conspiracies. So um, there were several players in the 60s uh, that were caught gambling on their team, gambling in general. Um, a lot of them were just fined and missed games. Uh, but Paul Horning, running back for the Green Bay Power, uh, Packers, and Alex Karos, um, which was a defensive tackle for Detroit. You, the audience probably knows him better as the adoptive father of Webster in the sitcom back in the 80s. Um, that's how I knew him. I Absolutely. didn't even know he played football until my know, dad. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know, know he played football. I just didn't know. Yeah, but I, I mean, he's, I think he's in the Hall of Fame. Um, we'll have Stat Guy get on that. Yeah, but he had, a, he had a pretty uh, spectacular... Um, a career in, in the NFL, so I should have probably been on top of that. Yeah, those both of those players were suspended for the entire 1962 season. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Mike. So the 1966 season is capped with Super Bowl one, NFL champion and AFL champion playing one game to determine the world champion, which is, I mean, got to be America's dream, man. Getting because there's this upstart league and you're. You know, seeing people talking back and forth, like who can win this one, who can, you know, who's the best team? Jim Brown versus Joe uh, Joe Namath. I guess Joe Namath wasn't in there yet. You know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, you, you got, you just have, yeah, finding out who the best team really is. So yeah, and I mean, you compete to find out who's the winner. I mean, ultimately, you want to be crowned the world champion, and that's what the the Super Bowl did. Um, it, it was important for a lot of reasons. It really brought uh, attention to the sport of professional football. Um, it shined a light on how good the NFL was and ultimately how good the AFL was. Um, our subtitle for this episode is going to be called In the Beginning. And the reason I uh, came up with this name is because I, I kind of look at, like if you look at the NFL history as like, you know the you know the history of a galaxy you know this super bowl 1 was the big bang this 1966 season was the big bang this is where everything started and the universe started to expand right okay. and so in the beginning someone created the super bowl nice so yeah very important absolutely so um so there was a bit of a controversy um in November of 1963, um, the president of the United States, uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, was assassinated in Dallas. Um, and there was a lot of question as to whether the NFL should play their slate of games um, that weekend. Um, now, Pete Rozelle 
really held back um, whether he was going to uh, make his decision until he had a little bit more facts and a little bit more timing. He had contacts in the government, the CIA, some, some CBS folks, um, and he ultimately decided to play the games on, on Sunday uh, following the assassination, uh, even though those games were not um, on television. So CBS had decided to preempt everything, every TV show, everything uh, until his burial. So um, Pete Rozelle, in retrospect, thought that this kind of was one of those uh, bad decisions, and I don't think he would do that again. Uh, conversely, the AFL had decided not to play games on that day, and um, I think in a lot of ways that mistake kind of brought the AFL to the surface as a viable league. A lot of people were offended by the NFL playing and, and things like that. So, yeah. I mean, it was one step, one misstep in a lot of really good steps forward. Um, so ultimately, I think it, uh, Roselle's legacy is positive, um, but this was a pretty big thing back in the day. Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a huge pivotal moment in, in the history of, of our country and you know obviously it, it spread out to every other little facet of our of our entertainment and television and everything else like it's a uh, very interesting man i'm glad you brought that up yeah um on a lighter note <laughs> i uh, i found the shotgun formation was used for the first time in 1960 by the san francisco 49ers coach red hickey is the one that came up with that and named it. He was a, a Southern guy. Said basically, I saw an interview with him. He's just like, yeah, I loved guns and shooting ducks, and we, uh, yeah, I just named it the Shotgun Formation because the guy's back from the lineaways and blah blah. And yeah, there is some controversy about that because he had uh, John Brody at the time, and basically John Brody, he wanted Red Hickey wanted to run the shotgun. John Brody was faster and, and more mobile than Y.A. Tittle, so he beat him out for the job, and they started running this shotgun formation. And it was pretty much just a gimmicky thing at first, um, and they didn't run it a whole lot, but they did. They you know they implemented it into their offense, and then it really gained traction later, uh, the the end of the '60s and early '70s with Tom Landry and his offense with the Cowboys. And Roger Staubach running, Staubach, Staubach, I don't know. <laughs> Roger Staubach running, tomato, tomato. running the uh, offense there in, in Dallas. So I thought that was an interesting side note. And, and apparently um, the shotgun evolved from the single wing and similar double wing spread. Uh, famed triple threat man Sammy Baugh had claimed that the shotgun was effectively the same as the version of the double wing he ran at Texas Christian in the 30s. So I guess there's like some controversy as to where it actually started from, but I guess that's maybe the origin of it. And then uh, Red Hickey turned it into something different. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, we use it all the time now. I mean, I don't I mean, think, yeah, they, they say Roethlisberger hasn't taken a, a snap under center in like 10 years. So, I mean, it's, right. it's definitely and a every major college, part of yeah, the Yeah, every college uh, team run, like, they have to teach if they if, if, if a high-level college quarterback comes into the NFL today, they have to learn how to take snaps under center because from high school, even little league, they don't really go under center anymore. Well, you think about it. You do a, you're doing a, a five-step or seven-step drop. You're, ha you're dropping that deep in order to allow your – self allow your wide receivers time to get into their routes and get to their spots and then you know not get you know pummeled by the defensive line right so that's where you're taking those deep drops um and a lot of times however you have to turn your back to the to the defender like a play action you're turning around you're you're turning your back to the defender and you're spinning back around and now you have to evaluate really mm -hmm. quickly the the benefit of the shotgun is you're you have everybody in front of you you're a good, you know, eight, you know, five yards back from the line of scrimmage, so you have a little bit of time. You can take a quick three-step drop and let it let it fling. Uh, I, you know, just as what's important nowadays, a lot of time is how fast you get that ball out, and you know, 
that's what you were talking about with colleges. You know, you give them simple reads, right. half the field comes out quick, and and there you go. So yeah, this is a major major uh, advancement, and and really, I mean, yeah, something that that's still still obviously uh, yeah, yeah like has the the fingerprints of it on all of today's offenses yeah so one of the things that was super interesting for me that i didn't even know until i started diving into this was that um the nfl and the afl once the merge agreement was in place um they started having um joint drafts so that started in uh, the 1967 draft. Basically, whatever your record was in your league, in your conference, kind of set you in place um, in that joint draft. And they just shuffled you in like a, you know, like a deck of cards. So in that 1967 draft, the first pick was by the Baltimore Colts. Uh, it was Bubba Smith, defensive tackle from Michigan State. Um, I knew him as Hightower from the Police Academy movies. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, yeah, that big dude in that movie Love was that was guy. a football player. Love that um, guy. Yeah, it was really interesting. And then the first AFL team selected fourth, and they picked uh, Bob Greasy. It was the Miami Dolphins. Yeah, I wonder how they didn't make I, – I'm, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. I wonder why they didn't make it just, you know, the worst – whoever has the worst record gets the first pick, but then, you know, so like say that was uh, that was the Colts, and then – the worst team from the AFL should get the second pick and vice versa. I guess there was different amounts of teams in each league, so you couldn't really do that at the time. Wait, 67, there was 16 teams? In the NFL. In the and NFL and in nine. Nine. Because the, the Bengals didn't come in until 1968. Year, right, yeah. right. Yeah, so that that's interesting. My, though, like, Miami would have been then in, in 1966. It, they would have been pretty bad for yeah. that year. So That's what I was thinking, too. So Because they didn't pick till fourth. So I was wondering how there were three teams in the NFL with worse records than them. But that's, yeah. There was a lot of tomfoolery going on. There were some reparations that were supposed to be paid to right. the NFL. So I don't know what agreements that they figured yeah, out. Yeah, I tried how much to dig in. I couldn't hand. find anything. It's hard. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, some of this stuff. We're, Maybe we're coming, when we we're have Roger Goodell on here, we can we can pick his brain on these things. Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, 1969 then marked the 50th NFL season and the last before the NFL and AFL merger, and you know, the rest is history and and kind of what we know today. Yeah, the NFL really seems to like to bookmark decades, which makes this kind of formula for our show pretty pretty easy and pretty exciting because you really have a full 10 years um, of things and then a major change that goes for that next decade. Um, I don't know if they plan it that way or if it's just kind of happenstance, but yeah, 1969, 50 years, got a new league coming in, flux of players coming in and a new audience to enjoy the product. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. Um, so yeah, Mike, and then our next category is obviously the teams that we, we go through every every time. And so 13 teams start the 1960s, and uh, it's the NFL Eastern Conference is made up of the Cleveland Browns, New York Giants, Pittsburgh Steelers, Philadelphia Eagles, St. Louis Cardinals, and Washington football team. I guess you know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> and then the Western Conference was the Los Angeles Rams. Chicago Bears, Baltimore Colts, Detroit Lions, San Francisco 49ers, Green Bay Packers, and Dallas Cowboys. Yes. So the Dallas Cowboys were added <clears throat> for the 1960 season um, in part to compete directly against the Dallas Texans of the right. AFL um, owned by Lamar Hunt. That became the who Kansas was, City Chiefs. Yeah, who was the brain, you know, the AFL was his brainchild. So right. there's a lot of, uh, again, shenanigans going on. So that being said, prior to the 1960 season, the league expanded to 13 teams with the addition of the Dallas Cowboys. Then uh, finally getting their way, the Bidwells moved the Cardinals to St. Louis. And that's a net no change, still 13 teams. And for also part of uh, pillaging the AFL uh, leadership ranks. All right. And continuing with their Tom Fullery, the uh, Minnesota Vikings um, were awarded to uh, Max Winter, one of the f formerly one of the uh, the Foolish Club, 
Um, so we added the Minnesota Vikings for the 1961 season. Uh, net gain um, plus one. We have now 14 teams heading into 1961. And we still don't know if those uh, Minnesota Vikings were paid for with uh, illegal mob money from from uh, bootlegging or, or other shenanigans. You know, I'm almost positive. It has to be. It has to be. <laughs> All right. So prior to the 1966 season, the NFL expanded when they added the Atlanta Falcons. So that's a net plus Atlanta Falcons moving the league to 15 teams. And the final addition to the uh, NFL in the 1960s um, was the New Orleans Saints. Um, at this point, they had 16 teams. They realigned into two conferences and uh, four divisions, two divisions in each conference. So we ended um, the season with um, the Eastern Conference had what they called the NFL Capital Division, which had the Cowboys, Saints, football team, Eagles, the NFL Century, which had the Browns, Cardinals, Giants, Steelers, and then the Western Conference, which had the NFL Coastal Division, Colts, Rams, 49ers, and Falcons, and the Central Division um, had the Vikings, Bears, Packers, Lions. What, what uh, coast is Atlanta on? No, I'm just um, Yeah, I mean, that's, I believe Georgia. Yeah, I mean, it's on the Atlantic that's Ocean, so and, and Baltimore. I mean, but like, think about that division: is Baltimore and Atlanta, and San Francisco and LA. That's crazy. It doesn't make sense. No. You look at the NBA, and I know it was they were the Sonics, but you know, the Oklahoma Thunder are in the uh, Northwest Division. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Let's realign people. Yeah. No Maybe doubt. rename. <laughs> so speaking of realignment and renaming, um, the Giants and the New Orleans, New Orleans Saints, they switched a bunch of times. They aligned them um, in, in the century, and then they went back to their original divisions by 1969. I don't know what, they were, what was going on there, but I think they were trying to create some matchups and some, um, with some different teams and trying to realign them as much as they can regionally. Uh, but there were some obligations and things like that that they had to honor through the rest of that season. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, the next category is changing the game. I think the f biggest thing um, to start off this, the 1961 season was the expansion to 14 games. Uh, it act also realigns with the amount of games that the AFL was playing, kind of sets the stage for now these two teams are on the same level. They're getting the same record, and it's, it's easier to compare records when you're trying to decide who's um, a conference winner, and, et cetera. So right. it's, it's setting the stage for what is to come. In 1962, grabbing the face mask was finally prohibited, which... For any we, player. Yeah, for any player. So, couldn't couldn't grab it, couldn't rip a guy's helmet off. I, and watching some of the old highlights, it's probably a good idea that that didn't happen anymore because I couldn't even imagine what these guys were doing back then. Like, there's some Dick Buckkiss highlights I saw that looked terrifying. So, there was like 40 years of professional football where you could just grab a dude by his face and rip him to the ground. And then the 50s they decided this is probably not a good idea. You can't grab any more face masks except for the ball carrier. Mm. And this Oh, that makes sense. And this carry, yeah, right. <laughs> and this carried till 1962 when they're like, "All right, we we can't do this. We're going to kill people out here." So, it's a good rule, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. No so, um finally in 1964 all of these teams complaining about not being able to white, wear white jerseys at home were allowed to. I don't know why this is a, you know, a huge deal for anybody, but I, I thought it was an interesting little fact that the NFL has is getting with the times and allowing some, you know, different jersey jerseys to be worn. Hey man, uh, look good, feel good, feel about, good, play yeah, good. It's not about the rules, man. Let's just play the games. Nineteen sixty six. The goalposts were painted bright yellow with 20-foot-tall uprights above on either end of the crossbar. So that's just a little minor tweak because, you know, the goalposts up to that point, I think, were white and 
big concrete pilings at the base and yeah exactly so initially um in so it was it used to be a big h essentially right so um back in 1927 they had put the h on the uh they had moved the h back to the back to end line because guess what when you put something on the on the goal line that these guys are trying to cross they they run into it or the ball get hits a pole or something when they're running a crossing route it didn't make any sense um but what they did find when they did that um they they had more trouble kicking field goals so they moved it back up in 1933 and it stayed there um until 1974. they did make some changes they put it into more of a slingshot um style that we see now which has that curved pole the crossbar and the uprights uh versus the big h and they set it back a little bit so it wasn't right on uh, the goal line it was a couple like a yard or so back so you know you would guys wouldn't collide at that yeah and you know i on a side note i did see that you know that we'll probably cover more in the next episode but that in you know you mentioned that they moved it uh back and it cut down on field goals. So they wanted to move it back forward. So there'd be more field goals. Well, then in 74, when they finally did move it to the back of the end zone where it resides now, it was because they thought there was too much field goal kicking going on. And right. it was slowing, they're making the game boring and they wanted to, you know, they want more touchdowns. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Um, you know, uh, specialization takes over. Um, soccer style kicking became the norm and they just were able to get better and kick farther. And, you know, if you're on the 30 or 40, you know, 30 yard line and you can just kick that and you're, you know, it, it made sense. I mean, they weren't blowing each other out. This, these were, you know, still essentially three yards in a cloud of dust type offenses. So, yeah. All right. So in 1965, the NFL had added a six official We call it the line judge. Um, This particular official was added because they called it the Fran Tarkenton rule. So essentially, there's already a judge on the other side, the head judge, um, and he would be the one that would stand on the line of scrimmage and see if the quarterback had passed that um, when when he threw. Okay. So it was one of his main tasks. But with Fran back there running around. Um, and throwing the ball, if he get to the other side of the defense, he couldn't tell very well. So what they did is add another uh, referee to that side of the field to be the eyes over there. So interesting. I love it when a player forces a rule. You know, hand t- you know, hand checking gone, or right. you know, whatever. Playing a zone in in the NBA, just adding these because these amazing players come in. And I thought you were going to say that they added the uh, extra ref to make sure that they're were no fans walking in from the from the back of the end zone to knock the ball away in uh, critical situations and in in an NFL game like on the we discussed on the last episode. Well, I think a lot of these teams ended up getting like actual stadiums and stuff like that. So <laughs> yes, I think that took part. In with, just yeah. let's get them in the stands <laughs> right. and don't let them on the field. Yeah, yeah. don't uh, not playing in a park anymore. So. That's funny. So, yeah, and in 1966, the NFL expands to 16 games now, which was the standard for quite some time. As yeah. we know, we just added a 17th game for this season, 2021. So, okay. um, yeah, it carried for quite a long time with that 16 games. And obviously yeah. that's to um, accommodate the, the expansion to 16 uh, teams for that year. Right, right. And yeah, in 1967, Mike, uh, we already kind of discussed the slingshot design for the goalposts and um, that and a six foot border around the field were made standard there in 1967. Right. So initially it was so that the the referees could go up and down the sideline without being, you know, running into players and coaches and stuff. But I do remember um, about 46 years after this rule was implemented, uh, Sunday night football uh, rivals Pittsburgh Steelers and uh, Baltimore Ravens. Kobe Jones getting the kickoff, running down the sideline just to, to have Mike Tomlin kind of there. I don't know, reading the newspaper yeah. on the sideline, not paying attention. I, that was. The... <laughs> I'm like, what is he doing? No kidding. So this 
rule effectively was supposed to prevent that as well that he was not supposed to be standing there i don't think he got flagged or anything happened yeah. you know during that game but i imagine that's a that's a 15 yard penalty from the, at least. from the spot of the at least. <laughs> the tackle at, at that point and find later i'm sure yeah no doubt so one of the other things was once they went to 16 games they they expanded their playoff uh, the nfl so Gone is the playoff bowl, and now we have um, we have two division winners playing each other for the right to play in the NFL championship game. So the the division winners in each of the Western and Eastern conferences would play, and then those winners would play for the NFL champion. Very cool. Very. I, I love that. That they. I was wondering when they got to that point. And- Glad we figured that out. There it is. All right. Next, 1960 fantasy football draft. Dig in, folks, because this is going to be a doozy. All right. So I had the uh, first pick of the quarterbacks this decade. So my first pick was uh, Sonny Jurgensen. Threw for over 10,000 yards, 91 touchdowns. Um, not much of a runner, but man, I think he smoked everybody in passing yards and touchdowns this decade. Okay, my first pick was Johnny Unitas. I'm uh, I'm going back to the well one more time. Uh, you know, I had him in our 1950s draft as well. In the I chose him from 1960, 63, and 67. Uh, he threw for 10,000 yards in those three seasons and 66 touchdowns. I mean, you know, what what else can you say? The guy was probably the, I mean, Finished his career with 40,000 yards, yeah, first I mean, man to 40,000. He was yeah. probably the best quarterback of his generation. That's a great pick. And the generation prior, honestly. Yeah, right. He's one of those players that kind of straddled that, that era. He took, you know, whatever version of passing offense was in, you know, Sammy Baugh and stuff like that in, in the early, in the fifties, he, he kind of came in at the end of that decade and then took that into like 1974. Mm-hmm. So he had quite an expansive, um, career. Um, and I think he led to the next generation, those Peyton Mannings and those guys that, that came up, they still had a cultural, as much yeah. as they were in a football, cultural reference to Johnny Unitas and how spectacular he was. So. And I remember, uh, I remember after Johnny Unitas passed away, I believe the Colts and Peyton Manning were playing on Sunday night football. And the black shoes. Manning wore the black shoes because he wanted. He to, asked. He wouldn't have done said it no, without But permission. they said no, and they still find him because he did it anyway. I'm, pre- it I'm, anyway. I'm like 99% sure. I'll have Stat Guy check that yeah. too. But All right. So now uh, you're going up quarterback again. Yeah, my second pick uh, for quarterback is the man that took over um, the passing most passing yards in NFL history, uh, Fran Tarkenton. He had, um, I picked 64, 7, and 9. I had 8,500 yards, uh, 74 touchdowns, another 1,000 or so rushing and four touchdowns there over that period of time. Uh, Fran Tarkenton. All right. Uh, my next pick was Yelberton Abraham Tittle, or Y.A. Tittle. Y.A. Tittle. Uh, for, Y.A. For, Tittle. For an abbreviation there. Uh, he was, at the time that I'm choosing him, he was with the New York Giants. From 1961 to 63, uh, he had 8,600 passing yards and 86 touchdowns. Those touchdowns are just crazy. Yeah, the 49ers, yeah, he actually, uh, so 49ers traded him to the Giants when he was 34 years old in 1960. Uh, he went on to set and break the single-season se- touchdown record over the next few years and win an MVP in 1963. Led the Giants also to three straight NFL championship games after they just thought he, you know, the 49ers thought he was washed up and uh, and done for and, and sent him out to New York. And he had the best three years of his career, more or less. So, Revenge. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So you had the first pick for running backs. Who is your first running back oh, for the 1960s? Um, I mean, it doesn't really even take I, I almost left this pick for you because I wanted to do something for, you can't do that I wanted to do something for MJ and map and let you have Jim Brown but I couldn't do it there's no there's nobody else Mike there's nobody else he is absolutely 
without question, the best player over his entire career. Yes. He had a, he had a ten year career. Um, I had yeah. So and, I, I I picked him from sixty three to sixty five. In those three seasons, he had forty eight hundred over forty eight hundred yards rushing, thirty six rushing touchdowns, almost another thousand receiving, and nine more touchdowns. It's a touchdown machine. Couldn't stop him. No. I mean, he was he's unbelievable. So, had I had the first pick, I definitely would have gone there, um, but I didn't. So I went with uh, Jim Taylor, uh, sixty-one, two, and four. So we have four thousand rushing yards, forty-six touchdowns, another six hundred uh, and four in receiving. Jim Taylor, he was the primary running back for the Green Bay Packers was, throughout that. Throughout yeah, that's that a decade. great pick. Great pick. Great pick. Yeah, because that's all they did. Was I mean, they ran the ball. They just it was pitched Taylor like I, I watched I was watching some 1960s game film this week and uh, getting ready for this and You're it was maniac. just it was just pitched to Jim Taylor pitch left pitch right that's all they did. Uh, so my next pick was Leroy Kelly for the Cleveland Browns from 1966 to 68. Oh, the other thing about Jim Brown, he retired because. They wouldn't let him finish filming the Dirty Dozen, or they didn't want him to finish filming the Dirty Dozen, so he was like, I quit, never mind. Paul Brown wanted to control everything. Yeah, Paul Brown wanted to be in control, and it didn't work. So I got Leroy Kelly out of the deal. Thank you, Paul Brown. Uh, And so Leroy Kelly had just under 3,600 yards rushing, uh, over 900 yards receiving, and 49 touchdowns in those three years. It's crazy, the Browns. You you lose... A generational, um, probably the best running back in NFL history, arguably, ever. Um, and then you, he retires in 1965 and you pick up Leroy Kelly and just go for another 4,000, 42 touchdowns, another 1,000 receiving and seven receiving and touchdowns. More t- and more, yeah, more touchdowns than, than Brown had in his three years prior, so... It's insane. Good, good, good on you. Yeah. Good on you, Paul. All right. So uh, keeping in line with kind of similar backfields, I picked Paul Horning. Um, I didn't pick his year that he was suspended for gambling. Um, His rushing numbers are low, but the reason I picked him is he did a lot of the kicking for um, the Green Bay Packers as well. So taking a page out of your playbook, I decided to kind of look at some of these special, you know, these uh, running backs and quarterbacks and see if they had any good special teams points going. So I picked Paul Horning, about 1,700 yards uh, rushing, 26 touchdowns, another 500 receiving, um, four touchdowns, and um, almost 300 special teams points over the three-year span that I picked. So Paul Horning. Yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Didn't even realize it, or I would have snaked you again. <laughs> so, uh, so you get first pick on receivers yep receivers is mine and my first pick uh for receiver bobby mitchell uh, i picked 1962 three and six in that period of time he has 170 rushing yards with a touchdown and almost 4,000 receiving um another 27 touchdowns there and he also did some kick returning, uh, punt returns, and uh, ended up with another 12 points for me there. So, Bobby Mitchell, Ooh. my first pick. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I did not even check my wide receivers for return or um, or rushing yards because I'm uh, lazy, I guess. I well, know, it's a but... good thing that I did in your scoring oh, because I look hey, at all I'll of those it. when I'll I put the scores it. in. So, my first wide receiver pick was Tommy McDonald from the Philadelphia Eagles. I chose him from 1961, 62, and 65. And uh, over those three years, he had 2,400 receiving yards and 32 touchdowns. Let's not leave out the 10 passing yards and one touchdown that he had. So Ooh, yeah, I threw that in there for him. Yep. I love it, man. Getting I feel points like I'm, I'm done if you got 300 points from, uh, from, <laughs> from Horning from kicking, man. Damn it. Yeah, we'll see where that ends up. So my final pick at receiver uh, was Bullet Bob Hayes. Um, there, he has a special place in my heart. Um, he was the guy. When I found this out, I just went. This is like one of we we were talking about this earlier. Game changing players, right? And he's one of those game changing players. Um, they had to start incorporating zone defenses because the cornerbacks couldn't keep up with him 
uh, on man. Right. Man on man. So Yeah, I was bummed when you made that pick. That was going to be my next pick. Yeah, so I was really happy to have that there. Um, so I have him for 65 through 67, Bullet Bob Hayes. We have uh, 3,200 yards, 35 TDs in that time frame, and uh, a little cherry on top with a uh, touchdown in special teams. There you go. Uh, I had Jimmy Orr from the Baltimore Colts for 62, 64, and 65. Uh, he had 2,600 plus yards receiving and 27 touchdowns over those three years. And uh, I'm going to leave it to you if you had any, I don't know if you had any receiving or uh, mean return yards or. Uh, no, but he, or but Jimmy Orr teams. did have 15 hat tricks. Which is three touchdowns in a game. No, it's just, oh. just like a hockey name. Okay. Damn it. I was thinking I was getting some extra points. Bobby or Orr. Let's go. Jimmy yeah. Orr. Got it. Yeah. Got All right. It. Jesus. All right. So slow. you're up for, oh wait, no. You're up first with flex. So my flex position, uh, how I'm not sure, I mean, Gail Sayers, how he slipped out of the running back competition, but I was happy he did. I took him from the Chicago Bears, obviously, from 1965 to 1967. Uh, 2,900 rushing yards and 29 touchdowns. Um, had another 1,100 yards receiving and nine touchdowns and six return touchdowns over those three years. Yeah, 48 points uh, in total um, special teams points. So for me, I left Gale Sayers out because he's a little bit inconsistent across um, his years. I think he blew his knee out in like 66 and still played – um, a couple of years after that, but his production right. dropped pretty substantially. Um, I can only assume that during that period of time that he was so fantastic in those four or five seasons that he, from his rookie year to when he hurt his knee, that anyone who watched him would have said he's the most exciting player um, that to watch. Amazing. Yeah. Um, it was a huge draft when he came in. I think the um, Bears got him and Dick Buckus in the same draft. Oh, um, wow. They never really won anything um, as a as a group, um, but they both are in the Hall of Fame and both were you know really good players. So yeah. great, high, great pick highlight, for Gale Sayers. Yeah, thanks, man. Their highlight films are are pretty amazing. Yeah, those kick returns with with Gale Sayers just jumping all over the place is pretty amazing. Yeah. So I'm getting into territory where I'm not even sure about these players. Like I haven't, I didn't really know them. Yeah. Um, but my first pick um, was Bill Brown. A lot of Browns on my team. Um, so mm-hmm. he had 5,200 yards rushing um, in those three in from 1964, 66, and 68. Uh, 24 rushing touchdowns, another 1,400 receiving, another 12. Um, for me, for flex, I'm trying to find players that kind of uh, do multiple things yeah. out of the backfield, do some catching. Um, like putting a wide receiver at, at flex, you're really just, you're like losing point. You're giving up points. So yeah. You do your best to kind of try to find these uh, multifaceted players. Absolutely. All right. So my second flex choice was John Henry Johnson from the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, the years I had him were 61, 62, and 64. Uh, you know, he had 2,900-plus yards rushing, 20 touchdowns, uh, 500 yards receiving, and another four touchdowns. And I didn't even look to see if he had any return yards, so I guess you're going to have to uh, be my outlet on that. Let me know. If- no special teams points for him, but okay. pretty pretty decent uh, at rushing and, and receiving combos for sure. Yeah. Um, also born on the same day as my daughter, so wow. that, congratulations! I, do I get uh, extra points for that or anything? Uh, I did not add that oh, to the scorecard. So. Come on, sorry. And then my uh, final flex player um, from the Philadelphia Eagles uh, was a man named Timmy Brown. Timmy Brown got me um, oh, about twenty-two hundred yards rushing, seventeen touchdowns, and another two thousand receiving. So thirteen um, touchdowns there, and added a couple of more um, special teams uh, touchdowns for me. He also threw for eleven yards um, and one touchdown and one interception. So, all right, all right. 
getting me. You're getting me here, man. I know I lost. I'm just um. That, I don't. To, uh, let's win. all right. Let's see. Let's okay. play this out. So you, you, we, uh, we did tight. We did two tight ends. So you're gonna be the first choice on tight ends. Yeah, I mean, it was an obvious choice. I think it gets uh, pretty dark um, for tight end after this first choice. My first choice um, was Mike Ditka of the Browns, 1961, 62 and 63. Um, So we had almost 3,000 yards receiving during that time and 25 touchdowns. Um, Not a lot else uh, for these tight ends to really account for. So, yeah, I mean, the best of the bunch, really, Mike Ditka at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, You know, but you can't really go wrong with with, uh, Iron Mike there. So... So my first tight end selection after Iron Mike Ditka there is going to be Pete Retzlaff, the Philadelphia Eagles tight end. I had him from 61, 64, and 65. He had 2,800 yards receiving and 26. 26 touchdowns. Excellent. Yeah, and you nailed his name. I, I mean, I don't. I think I had to read it like four times. You to know what? I said it into Siri like three different times and the one that she got was pete retzloff so oh wow i rather just stumble across it but good on <laughs> you for trying to be better all right so my second pick was jackie smith um as a tight end we got some rushing yards out of him almost 300 um Ooh. three touchdowns so that's not too that's bad nice. no, nothing to shake a stick at another 2800 yards receiving another 14 touchdowns and apparently threw an interception. So I had to hey, get that minus two, two out of yeah, there. So hey, I like it. Jackie Smith from 66 to 68. All right. So my second tight end was John Mackey from the Baltimore Colts. Uh, you might recognize the name. Uh, the Mackey Award finalists in college football for the best uh, college tight end. There you go. So I had him from 63, 65, and 66. A little over 2,300 yards receiving and 23 touchdowns. Yeah, I like that little tidbit there of the Mackey Award. So that's a good call. Yeah. All right. So do our I, fun- do I get any extra points for that? No. 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 Just trying to get extra Stat points. That guy's anyway. very happy. <laughs> so I mean, that's a little. I that's something. It. I love it. All right. So um, the final grouping that we're gonna uh, pick here is the kicker. We're just taking one a piece. Um, I ended up with uh, Fred Cox, um, 1964, 65, 69. We had a total of uh, 337 special teams points uh, for those years. Uh, yeah, by this point, when you told me we were taking kickers, I was done looking at stats, and I just Googled who was the best kicker in the 1960s, and it came up with Jim Backen of the St. Louis Cardinals, and uh, I chose him from 64, 65, and 67. He had 73 field goals and 109 extra points across those three years. Yeah, so 328 total special teams points for him. Uh, That brings your total, your sum total of fantasy points for the 1960s NFL draft uh, to 5,899.22 points. So, drum roll. You had over 6,000. 6,066.04. All right, you can't win all of them, okay? This I'm is this is loser. how this works. I'm a poor loser, man. <laughs> I'm no. sure you're gonna find some <laughs> angle for the 1970s. I'm working on it already. Trust me. No, <laughs> just kidding. All right. Well, just that was kidding. fun. Yeah, that was good. No, I'm glad you got in the in this on the scoreboard. We're good to go now. All right. Our final category before we uh, talk about the dynasties of the decade are the winners and losers of the decade. So my first winner is uh, Pete Rozelle. He began the decade as the commissioner, and as we said earlier, ushered in an era of expansion and uh, the creation of the most iconic sporting event of all time, the Super Bowl. I like it. Uh, My first winner was, I I know we've done America as the winner all three weeks, but uh, America, F yeah, they, you know, I just feel like they, at this point, by the middle of the decade, they're getting the AFL champion versus the NFL champion. There's no room for debate on who's the best at the end of the year. It, you know, it, and it reminds me of, you know, when when you have an argument when there's a terrible NFL team like the uh, the Cleveland Browns a lot of years. I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on you and, and the Cleveland Browns, 
But one of uh, three you know, teams to to go winless. So yeah. So you know, when whenever you hear the arguments like, oh, could Alabama beat Cleveland? You know, this year let's let's get that. Like let's see that. I feel like that's kind of you know the same the you know, between the AFL and the NFL. You're like, well, who's better? Like maybe the AFL could win. Maybe the NFL is better. Who knows? So you get you, you those questions get answered, and I like that. Yeah, I mean, when you really think about it, you go, there are seven NFL players, ten NFL players on a given Alabama team, and there there's no and, chance. And there Alabama are fifty three NFL yeah. players. Trust me, there's there, there's no chance. I, every time people bring that up, I'm just like, you're crazy. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No. No. For sure. So uh, one of my winners was the South. Um, they added three teams in Southern states over this decade, uh, the Atlanta Falcons, the Dallas Cowboys, and the New Orleans Saints. In addition, there were several AFL teams that the ended Dolphins. up. Uh, the Dolphins. Uh, the Houston Oilers. Right. Um, eventually, the, the Dallas Texans moved to uh, St. Louis. Uh, several um, AFL teams ended up in the South. So the South, one of my big winners for yeah. 1960s. I like it. Uh, my next winner was the players, and specifically high-level college players, because during the fight between the AFL and NFL for dominance in the sport, you had these guys getting paid just crazy money to to go one way or the other, and you know, I mean, that's good good on them. There were several high-profile players, like Joe Namath, for example, that kind of pitted the AFL and the NFL against each other right. kind of each one would come back and uh, up up bid the previous offer yeah. um so Billy we, Cannon yeah had, yeah there's there was quite a few yeah yeah so one another one of my winners finally the Bidwells um they took a couple of hits a couple L's um as it relates to the NFL and uh the AFL uh they were finally able to move to St. Louis so they didn't have to compete with the Bears anymore. In St. Louis, they actually didn't do too well, unfortunately. They went um, 67, 63, and 8 through over the decade. Um, they played in uh, three playoff games over over that decade and uh, didn't have home field advantage, didn't win. So yeah. it's kind of... Well, they're, move, they're moving in the right direction, though, towards uh, from, from the coldest possible location in, in our country, probably, or one of, to... Uh, they're heading towards Arizona as we speak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so from Racine to Chicago to Minneapolis for, for right, a season for a to St. Louis to Phoenix. Yeah, could think of worse places to be. All right, so my first loser, um, like my first winner, Pete Rozelle, my first loser is Pete Rozelle's chakras. Um, and the reason I put this out here is because he his mortal enemy was finally uh, presented to him, Al Davis. Now these two, after the merger, kind of went at it forever. Um, Oakland Raiders owner Al Davis spent most of the rest of his life testing the boundaries of Pete Rozelle uh, and the NFL brass over the the next forty years. Um, he sued the NFL for relocation. Um, he was kind of a thorn in the side of a lot of the the talks um, during the merger. Um, they had a pretty contentious relationship over the years. Um, so Pete got what he want, a, a merger, but he also got something that he didn't want, uh, a mortal enemy. So his, yes. his chakras definitely took, Absolutely. took one in the, in the middle. Yeah, I could see that for sure. So my first loser is Deacon Jones. After being disrespectfully selected in the 14th round of the 1961 draft out of South Carolina State, Jones completely dominated the sport from the defensive line. Uh, you know, widely credited with coining the term sack, even though they wouldn't become an official statistic until 1982. Uh, according to Pro Football Weekly, Mike, Jones would have had 173 and a half sacks in only 191 games in his career. Yeah, so I think only in loser in the context that he wasn't really recognized right. for That's how important saying. he was to the NFL, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's so, unfortunate. He's talked about it in he's said as much in a lot of interviews that he has. Right. Yeah, it's it's uh it's definitely uh yeah, that's that's kind of the angle I was going for was from from just uh disrespect 
disrespect uh, angle there. So. so there are a lot of iterations between Cleveland and the Browns and all these other things that have made my winner-loser lo- list over the last uh, couple ep- episodes. So um, true to form, I'm going to say the losers, uh, one of the losers for this decade is the Cleveland Browns. Um, they had a relatively um, productive, they won a championship in the 60s, had one of the best players in the league, had one of the best coaches in the league, but it all came to an end. Um, they lost their head coach, Paul Brown, to a feud with uh, owner Art Modell. Um, they, Paul Brown becomes an owner and uh, first head coach of the expansion team in the AFL, the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, he goes off and nurtures you know, some coaching talent like Bill Walsh, uh, Weeb Eubanks, um, Sam Weish, and kind of makes continues on his legacy outside of the Browns. And, and then from that moment forward, uh, the Browns really were not much of a significant team in, in the NFL. Yeah, okay. Um, my second loser of the, the decade and, and really my last loser of the decade is the Baltimore Colts just because of how unlucky they were. Check this out, Mike. So they lost 13-10 to 10 in overtime to Green Bay in the 1965 playoffs, and I think Green Bay went on to win the championship that year. Uh, they had to play with halfback Tom Matt, or Matty, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, as the QB with Johnny Unitas and backup Gary Cuozo injured. They tied for the best record in the league in 1967, when they went 11-1-2 but missed the playoffs when they lost a tiebreaker with the Rams. They were even better the following year despite losing Unitas in a, uh, to an injury in the preseason. Baltimore went 13-1 in the regular season, won the NFL title with a 34-0 victory over Cleveland, but then lost the Super Bowl to the New York Jets in one of the biggest games ever, obviously. Right. So they were just kind of the hard luck team of the decade, and I yeah, thought that was... You know, how, what, you know, where do you go from there? That's definitely yeah, one of it's, the Yeah, it's tough. It's that one team that's close every year that you it's really like are rooting Dan for. like having Dan Marino and you can't win the Super Bowl. Yeah, I, I, I would think, like, you know, Miami played some pretty – I think in the early uh, 80s, Miami was pretty relevant. I mean, they were um, one game away from the Super Bowl in 85. Um, they were beat by the Patriots who went on to lose to the Bears. Mm-hmm. Um, it – a note that particular year, um, Marino and the Dolphins were the only team to beat the 85 Bears. So, I mean, just think about that um, as a matchup. And it's it's why it's so – that's why they play the games, right? Because you never know what's going to happen or what game plan is going to pop up or how a person is going to perform in a given situation or given weather. So um, it's what makes this game so exciting. Absolutely. All right, so uh, any other losers? That's my last one. All right, so that ends our category. So now it's time to kind of take a look at the numbers and see who won the decade. So um, our calculations come to winner, the Green Bay Packers. With a dynasty score of 59, they went an amazing 96-37-5 for the decade. They made the playoffs eight times, conference champions six times. Um, they uh, won back-to-back Super Bowls in, uh, or back-to-back championships in this case in 1961 and 62, and then three in a row in 1965 to 67, including the first two Super Bowls, uh, shellacking the Chiefs and uh, the Raiders. Yeah, yeah, and you know that's you think about. That's the first team you think of when you think of great NFL, former NFL team. I mean, the Lombardi Trophy, the Super Bowl Trophy is named after the coach of the of those teams. So uh, they're the ones, man. It's, there was no, no real argument to even be made. All right, so our runner-up for the 1960s NFL were the Cleveland Browns. Their dynasty by decade score was 30 which, you know, Green Bay almost doubled them. Right. But their record was 92-41-5, which is, I mean, they had an incredible record. Uh, made the playoffs seven times, but here's where you, you see the how the uh, Packers broke away from them. They only had two conference championships, 
won NFL championship in 1964. Um, you know, Jim Brown would leave. We already talked about this a little bit. The Browns, uh, Jim Brown left the Browns after the 1965 season in part to pursue an acting career, but also because his tension with his head coach, Paul Brown, who wanted to control all aspects of the team uh, and players. Yeah. Yeah. Just like Bill Belichick. Yeah. But that type of coach, he was the general manager. He was the coach. He got he got offended by uh, Art Modell, his new owner, going behind his back and signing Ernie Davis. Um, he felt like they already had Jim Brown. They didn't yeah, need, you know, another running back. Um, he, and he's basically stay out of my building, stay off my floor, or stay off my grass, stay out of my locker room. Well, and they had uh, Kelly that I drafted as my second running back that took over for Jim Brown and. You know, had more touchdowns than him anyway over the next three years. So I mean, they had they had depth players. That, yeah, yeah, they had players that they didn't they didn't need. Uh... Or, or Art Modell stepping in and messing it up. Right. Yeah. All right. So I mean, I think it we we it was an honorable mention um, in our last episode. And I think it we can't explain uh, too much how important this particular team was to the history of the NFL, and that's um, the. Uh, New York football Jets, and particularly that 1968 season that ended with a uh, the Super Bowl three victory in 1969. Um, they had a dynasty score of 10, not a lot. Um, they were pretty me- mediocre through most of the decade, uh, 69, 5, and 6. Uh, made the playoffs twice, won conference championship in the AFL, um, but then won the Super Bowl against your uh, Baltimore losing <laughs> your losing note uh, Baltimore Colts. Right. Yeah, and I think I know we talked a little bit about what who the honorable mention for this should be, and and you came up with this one and thought maybe we could come up with something better, but I think this really goes to show you how important that game specifically was. Because, you know, we talked at the end of the last podcast about how the NFL or Pete Rozelle was considering redoing the, like, playoff uh, breakdown because he was like, well, these AFL teams can't compete with the NFL teams because they were getting their doors blown off by the Packers the first two championships. And, um, you know, they just needed – they needed something like this to happen to make – Yeah, to make the merger look – like a like the right thing to do exactly after super bowl one and two it didn't look good for the afl they beat the chiefs 35 to 10 and the oakland raiders 33 to 14 i mean just shellac yeah it that's that's really not a competition so to your point like Pete roselle had to start thinking about contingency plans we got this amazing super bowl coming up how can we get the two best teams to play each other and that's why Super Bowl three was so important. It was the first time that another football team that was not in the NFL was crowned world champion. And it was very important. It basically said the AFL can compete. They have the players. They have the talent. Um, they have the leadership to do this. Um, and they're making the right decision. And um, the Kansas City Chiefs the following year kind of put a cherry on top. Uh, winning uh, Super Bowl four against the Minnesota Vikings yeah. and essentially kicking off what it, what is a domination of the AFC, which was the former NF- AFL. The NFC dominates Super Bowls throughout that the yeah. 1970s. And we'll have more on that with our next episode. Absolutely. Hope you guys enjoyed it. You can... Pretty much find us anywhere now. We are on iTunes, uh, yeah, Apple Podcasts, I guess. Spotify, iTunes, same thing. Spotify, TuneIn. Uh, yeah, find us somewhere. You know, like, rate, review, share, and and obviously listen. We appreciate all of your guys' support, and we will be back next week. Peace.